HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And as most of you are aware, February is Black History Month. And those of us who are historians particularly, but many others of us, can sometimes be a little irked that black history is relegated one month of the year. Well, not for most of us. Every day is Black History Month or White History Month or Red or Yellow It's history. History is history. But at least during this one month, people are tuned in to the fact that there is history to be discovered. And I have to say that for a long time, well, not have to say, and not for a long time, but it is a fact that black chefs, African-American cooks, have long been forgotten or actually remained anonymous in American history, in African-American history. And apart from a a few standouts, uh, such as George Washington's African-American chef Hercules, who we have written records about, or Jefferson's uh, cook, who became actually quite, quite the French chef, James Hemings, or Dolly Johnson, again, to President Harrison. These were, we all know about these because they were cooks in the White House. They were cooks to presidents. But there's so much more. And the fact that we have no photographs or very little historical record, it's really hard to uncover much of the history. As, and then, as Jessica Harris has written in many times in the past, she says, have we forgotten that African Americans have a culinary tradition? beyond collards and fried chicken. Well, and apart, certainly we know from soul food, or otherwise called southern cooking oftentimes, but European explorers brought their own food to the Africas in the 14th century, and African, Africans brought their, particularly West Africans, brought their specific cuisine to Europe and then to the Americas in the 15th and past. So it takes a little digging, a lot of digging, but slowly 
a lot of this history is being recovered. And then there, is, there are images that, um, as our guests today say, will haunt people, good or bad, forever. And that is particularly, I'm talking about Aunt Jemima. Aunt Jemima is an image that, good or bad, certainly brings things up to our mind about what a black cook is. And our guest today is Tony Tipton Martin. And Tony is a journalist, a food writer, an author, an activist, <laughs> a founder of the nonprofit culinary education program, Sandy, for Kids at Risk. And she has a wonderful website and blog called The Jemima Code. And it also is an exhibit that she's put together. And I welcome Tony because she is doing something to crack that Jemima Code, as she says. Hence the title of our show today, Cracking the Jemima Code. Tony has been a journalist with the Los Angeles Times, a food writer and an editor, and with the Cleveland Plain Dealer. She worked for several years at Southern Foodways Alliance, documenting and celebrating the diverse food cultures, and they're uncovering a lot of history, I'm sure. And since moving to Austin, she has really created a niche for herself as an entrepreneur, a social entrepreneur, uh, starting this program that I just mentioned, the Sandy Culinary Education Program for Kids at Risk. And her leadership has been awarded by receiving the Community Leadership Award in 2010 from the University of Texas. And yet with all this success... Tony is haunted by this image of Aunt Jemima, and I welcome her today to explain to us why. Welcome, Tony. Well, thank you so much, Linda, and thank you for that amazing introduction. Um, you're so right that um, to say that Black History Month is um, a time of year that um, there's a bittersweet relationship for us with that time of year because we certainly are thrilled that the invisible people who have contributed so much to American society are being um, acknowledged, but at the same time, it's limited and relegated to this one time of year. Um, that's sort of the spirit that informs um, the work that I do um, to also uncover the uh, African-American women, in particular, who contributed to um, what we now know as American cuisine. Right. Well, so explain to our listeners what you mean when you say that you were haunted by this image or caricature of Aunt Jemima. Well, you know, when I give my, uh, con- when I have conversations with folks, that's always the first question. And it's a very good question. Um, the word haunting emerged when uh, I was taken to the um, family home of William Faulkner's um, house servant and cook, um, Caroline Barr. And the question, I, I was having a physical reaction to being in the presence of where this woman existed. And friends who were with me said that I seemed to be... Um, channeling or taking over the space of these women, and I sort of disregarded that thought as silly. Um, And at the same time, I had 
for years been um, tormented by the idea that no matter how many books and references I checked, I could not find positive and affirming images of these women. But that was so contradictory to what I knew um, to be just as a food professional, not as an African-American woman, but looking through the lens of the work of the culinary arts, I could tell and knew that these women had made more contributions than they were given credit for. Mm -hmm. And so I was haunted in some way by that, tormented maybe, missed, any of those words would be accurate. Um, And it sort of came to head when I was in Oxford during a Southern Foodways um, symposium and and recognized that in Faulkner's family, this woman was highly regarded, and yet she was unknown to others. Um, That led me to create this exhibit so that others can have the same experience that I had with the women. Well, um, on your website, you give a wonderful description of of what comes to mind when we when we see that iconic image of Aunt Jemima on the on the pancake mix or whatever or you know when the mammy uh image that so often is used for uh black african american cooks um tell us a little bit about what you feel that image brings to mind for people well i can tell you that um what it brings to mind specifically has been documented um, in recent years. This is an ancient history, um, cul- not culinary, but um, students at Texas A&M used the image of uh, the stereotyped African-American cook to depict a suburban black woman chastising her son for his poor academic performance during um, test time here in Texas. And it was a very degrading image of a woman with hair curlers and a head rag, and she was uh, posturing a spatula in one hand the way one would hold a weapon, Hmm. as if she were about to um, assault this child. And that was one of the pivotal moments for me in realizing that while Today's generations are accustomed to seeing images on packages. It's not unusual to see a mamacita, for example, on mm-hmm. um, on a package of on a container of salsa. And the Aunt Jemima imagery has been so um, neutralized that she's no longer the inflammatory image that she once was. Mm-hmm. So, for on one hand, this generation doesn't have any kind of recognition for a face on a package at all. Right. But for students, college students in particular, who are researching uh, images and other documentation for college assignments, this was the image that this child came away from whatever he found in the li- he or she found in the library as a reference to a black woman, and it was the stereotype of the black cook, and that imagery. Uh, has its roots in slave plantation literature. Um, there is quite a bit of debate now as to whether the woman that those 
that that image was um, patterned and modeled after ever really existed at all mm-hmm. more than just um, a character in the nostalgic writings of either housewives or authors at, in post-Reconstruction era America. But the fact remains that someone worked inside of these homes um, cooking and caring for families and children. And so whatever the distorted image of her is that eventually became the Aunt Jemima character and trademark, I'm more interested in pursuing who the real women were. And as you said in your intro, there's not very much factual data to validate who they were and what they would have looked like, what their characters would have been like, what their contributions were. We can read all kinds of um, plantation logs that tell us about um, how much property a landed gentry owner might have or what how much cattle he had, but we don't really know anything about the human beings that were among their holdings. Right. So I'm using cookbooks to try to find that that information. Well, and you've and you have been um, actually adding some oral and written histories from, um, as you say, some of the some of the cookbooks that you've uncovered, as well as some other historic writings. But certainly, your your I say recent history um, interviews with people, or just letters and writings about people, have been wonderfully. Um, descriptive of, of what some of the, the lives were. Uh, I would like to know, I would actually um, like our hear- listeners to hear a little bit about what this exhibit is that you've put together with the books and tell us about some of the books. You have quite a collection, too. I, I do have quite a collection, and I'm not a collector, collector by nature. Um, but uh, when I was at the L.A. Times, I uh, discovered that there were no... African American cookbooks um, in the library, as there were for all types of other cultures, including cooking on the Blue Danube. I could find <laughs> any number of topics, but the African American section was very limited. And um, so I began, and whenever I was traveling, just looking in antiquarian libraries and bookstores and um, purchasing at very little cost, um, any type of book that I could find Mm -hmm. that had some kind of black authorship. And um, I discovered that I had a real project going when I encountered Lena Richard. Mm. Lena Richard was a um, caterer, a restaurateur, and a... um, one of the first women to appear on television with her own cooking show in New Orleans in the late 30s. And she produced a cookbook called Lena Richard's New Orleans Cookbook in 1939. Um, She traveled to New York and engaged um, a relationship with James Beard. And through that, James Beard recommended that her book be published to Houghton Mifflin. And a year later, this book appeared in print with a new title, the New Orleans Cookbook. So eliminating her, her name, name. In her name, she was still given the authorship, but she was no longer in the core of the title. 
and her photograph was removed from the frontispiece hmm. of this book. I happened to have all three of those books, and I didn't do that intentionally. I picked up the paperback Dover edition when I was at the L.A. Times, and it was a, in the discard pile. And it didn't have her picture there either. I just was interested in Southern cooking and thought it would help with my pursuit of this invisible history. And uh, then encountered the Lena Richard book on eBay, and then subsequent to that discovered the New Orleans cookbook. And once I got them all together and put them side by side, I realized they had changed it. Right. Now, for what one of the books that we know um, as being or recognize as being one of the earliest, and for good reason that they weren't written down, reading and writing was, was denied um, the slaves early on. <clears throat> but Mrs. Fisher, uh, attributed to Abby Fisher, what Mrs. Fisher knows about old Southern cooking, that yeah from 1881, that's believed to be the earliest written. It was, and then uh, some years ago, um, Jan Longoni at uh, Clements Library Mm -hmm. at the University of Michigan, a fabulous archive of um, our culinary past, um, she received a donation of a book um, that was printed in 1866. And that is now the oldest existing African-American cookbook, and the author is Melinda Russell. Right. And so she has now replaced Abby Fisher um, in a category that is not by the men and their household directories, which go back much further. So what I did to answer your previous question is, as I saw these triggers in history, Lena Richard, Melinda Russell, and others, um, I realized that there were people who might want to interact with them and have the same kinds of reactions to them that I was having. And so we have created an exhibit. And it's a pop-up traveling exhibit. It's going to be um, at the James Beard House um, for March and April um, in New York. And these are screen-printed images from the books, and they are in varying sizes um, on a translucent theatrical scrim so that they are flowing and um, larger than life. And individuals bring to those images whatever their personal experience and thoughts are. And it's been very provocative. Oh, I'm sure. They were first exhibited at Project Row Houses in Houston um, in its historic third ward, and we occupied a little shotgun house there. So we were able to blow the images up to seven and a half feet tall. And then they were hung angularly so that as visitors meandered through the space, they could just engage with the women. And... um, And so there's been several elements that were important to me. Um, One was making sure that we contradict this Aunt Jemima stereotype while at the same time embracing the values and the contributions that those women made. Um, So we wanted to make sure that the rooms, wherever they hang, are really lovely. And so we painted the walls, my partner and I painted the walls of this shotgun house 
in warm food colors that would represent the types of food they would make. So sorghum, one wall was a, a brown sorghum color, one was a sweet potato pie color. So you could get hungry just walking so through the room. So you could get hungry also. And then there was a bright yellow, which we have debated whether it's sunflower or cornmeal. But um, the goal is that everyone can come away with a new appreciation for these women, starting with just engaging with them as real people and not caricatures. Right. Well, we have a lot more that I want to cover, and I want to uh, talk a little bit more about the food in particular and going beyond um, the collards and fried chicken. So we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be hearing more from Tony Tipton Martin. Whether you are cooking for one or for a crowd, Fairway Market literally has everything you need for a fantastic meal. But if you don't feel like cooking, no worries. They cater. Check out fairwaymarket.com for more information. And be sure to check the new blog, On Our Plate, for weekly specials, health tips, and recipes. back and we're talking about cracking the Jemima code with Tony Tipton Martin and Tony has a website by that same name the Jemima code wonderful website where she uh, also has posted a lot of the stories that she has from people one I, um, Tony I have to say that the letter this your your uh, story about Edna Lewis who of course is, has was one of um, and continues to be one of my favorites and many people's I'm sure uh, she wrote a letter to you, which was, it's very dear to you, and uh, such a telling letter. Can you talk a little bit about that? I can. Um, you know, when I was a young journalist at the Times and still struggling to figure out what I was actually doing, I met um, Miss Lewis at a food conference, and every one of us who had the privilege to encounter her knows that um, you can't come away from that experience without having been moved in some significant way. She was um, a grand dame is the best description for her. She was poised and articulate and brilliant and talented and beautiful and warm and engaging and so many really wonderful attributes that I recognized from the women in my own world. But I wasn't expecting to encounter that from a woman in the food industry, just because I wasn't expecting to encounter a woman in the food food industry industry, at all. So not because I didn't think that the two things could coexist, um, but I just didn't expect to know her. And I have to admit that I was ashamed that I didn't know more about her because she was being surrounded by an entourage, frankly, of white people who all knew who she was. And that was heartbreaking to me. And I set out to learn more about her um, through her books and um, 
realized that I, I was developing a real relationship with her from the written page, just from the tone of her work. And over the years, um, whether it was through um, the first book that I co-authored, A Taste of Heritage, uh, in which several of her recipes are reprinted, um, whether it was that project or projects at Southern Foodways Alliance, although by then she was pretty frail. Um, but various times throughout the years we would um, interact, and I shared with her this project that was starting to bear on my heart and explained to her my concerns. And she did as, as she uh, often did, which was to just give you her comfort and counsel um, and, you know, said, honey, you're going to be fine and it's a good project and you'll, you'll do the best you can. And that was sort of the public answer that she gave me at whatever event we were at. And then some days later, I received the most gorgeous letter in the mail from her. And um, as women of her generation did, they would write a timestamp. My aunt wrote, used to write, you know, that she had been up. She was writing at 5 a.m. I don't quite. I haven't researched that to know what they were doing, why they did that. But, but Miss Lewis wrote um, the timestamp uh, that it was 5 a.m. Um, when she was writing this letter, and she described that it was had been troubling her our conversation, and that she wanted me to know that I was absolutely right that. African-American women did need to be acknowledged for their contributions to American cuisine, um, that it was going to be a difficult task because there would be people who might feel um, threatened, as if we're I'm trying to take something away from the broader community and all of the work that's gone before me and all the cookbooks that have been written that have excluded them. And so she was this very gracious in her expression of caution, um, but she left me with a parting word that said, leave no stone unturned. Mm. And and I get choked up every time I even say it, um, because what she was saying to me was, it's not going to be easy, um, and it may be controversial, but it's important work. Absolutely, absolutely. And and so I've guarded that letter um, and have posted it um, on my website and blogged about that experience um, with her in hopes that I'll be able to do justice to other the other authors um, who I will know a little less about because they left such sketchy details, many of them, in their introductory matter to their books. Um, but as in the case of Melinda Russell, we were able to find a little bit more based on what was going on in the society in which she was living. Uh, well, you talk about your own, in talking about your own life and, and the difficulty you're having as you uncover some of these stories. And you also talk about your life as, when you refer to living in costume, what do you mean by that you've been living in costume? Oh, that's such a hard question. I've, I've been quoted <laughs> Long pause. That now. That's what I get for saying it. Yeah. Um, I mean, we all do to some extent, but yours much greater. Much it greater. is much. It is much greater, and and I think it's a self-imposed costume. So I don't know that it's entirely um, inflicted by the society in which we live. Although I will say that I think there's an expectation 
that if you're an African-American cook or chef, you must in some way conform to this image that has been constructed in the trademark of Aunt Jemima. And I think that that, if, if I say that I'm living in a costume, it is that I'm not sure how to play that role for people, and I don't often do it. Um, I'm pretty straightforward about my concern about the loss of the imagery for these women. Um, and and so I think when I made that when I made that statement, it was referring to a time in my life when I was a lot more in costume. Mm. Um, it was before I actually got the confidence from the women themselves and the wisdom from their words, like Edna's words, that say we are different. We aren't what we've been manufactured to be, and. And that made it difficult for me to navigate in the space of being the only black food editor or the only nutrition writer or the only whatever I was. Or that or that when you are a food editor or a nutritionist, that you are recognized as a black food editor or a black nutritionist. I mean, how, right. does, how does that, I mean, that, you know, no, you're a food editor. I mean, well, I don't know if I'm really answering your question, and I'm not sure that I can without giving an anecdote. Um, when I was a member of um, the uh, Association of Food Journalists, there was a conference um, event, and I happened to be wearing black slacks and a white blouse. <laughs> and somebody at the event, it was my first exposure outside of Los Angeles going into the South, and um, someone asked me to get them a drink, one of my peers in the food <laughs> industry. Um, they didn't know who I was. I had always been in byline at the time, so nobody knew that I was black. And then I showed up at this event, and they asked me to get them a drink. And so so the idea of the costume is something that um, has been written about many times by women like Alice Walker, who talk about us have African-American women living in dual spaces. Um, trying to come to grips with what is the truth about our background and our identity within that and the more dominating imagery of the expectation of who we are and what we are. And, and the costume for me is the, is the feeling like it's disingenuous. Um, both spaces. You're, mm-hmm. you're not able to really be who you want to be, can be, need to be, because there's always a, some force larger than you saying, well, this is our experience um, and expectations, so how do you fit into that? Mm-hmm. It's a difficult, it's a difficult um, position to be in. Right, right, indeed. Well, I, I sincerely hope that the wonderful work that you're doing and so many of the writers and historians today trying to trying to reach back and, and call some of this background and important history will continue to make a difference. Obviously, a difference has been made, but there is so far to go. And what we haven't talked about really, and in the short time that we have left, we haven't really talked about the food and the history of the food. And that, oh, that we could talk forever on that, but... 
um, at a conference, a cookbook conference in New York recently that we were at, um, and you were a panelist, and it was a wonderful panel presentation, the topic came up of, well, what do people think when they think of African-American food? And, of course, the first thing they say, well, soul food, which is also often referred to as southern cooking. And, yes, that's true, and it's not a bad thing, but, um, but there's so much more. Uh, what what are your when what are your feelings about soul food and the and the name full soul food? It's such a loaded question, and everyone asks it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, soul food, as um, most of us know, is a word, a definition that um, emerged out of the civil rights struggles of the '60s, right. at a time when um, African American dance and music and other artistic expressions were being reclaimed and identified by the word soul as as an expression that you can't really quantify, that it was just something that we did inherently. And for that particular period of time, that's a suitable definition for what comes out of the kitchen of African Americans. Um, I understand it as a way to def- to separate what we do from Southern cooking, but it's very confusing mm-hmm. if you ask people to identify, which I have done, um, to identify what they think soul food is. They will n- list the same foods that are in. Southern cooking, macaroni and cheese, collard greens, fried chicken, biscuits, black-eyed peas, cornbread, something cooked with bacon. Well, who was forming Southern cooking? And so, but but at, we weren't at a we weren't at a place in society where we could have laid that responsibility at the and that ownership at the feet of the African American cooks without somehow taking away from. The, what, the synergistic relationship that they had with the white cooks and the white community, where do those boundaries divide? Mm-hmm. And Leah, uh, Leah Chase was once asked that question, what's the difference between Southern and soul food? And Miss Chase's answer was, ours just tastes better. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a comical oversimplification. Right. Um, the reality is that that um, I would like to promote that African Americans learn just as other professional chefs do at the hands and feet, at the knee of another greater cook, that there wasn't anything magical and soulful about it. They were apprentices who began at a very early age picking beans, running out to the garden and harvesting the collards. Whatever the chore was, they learned at a very early age to recognize quality and um, develop some culinary proficiencies. But the word that people had for that at the time was soul. Right. And it's a, it became a very narrow definition, in my opinion, um, where some people actually extrapolated and said that it was only the foods of the fifth quarter and the things that people made uh, to make do. Um, and, and the African-American repertoire, as we can see from these old cookbooks, is much greater than that. If they were cooking in the big house as well as in the cabin, then they were navigating two spheres. And they were doing that all with incredible uh, memory or what I've been calling a mental mise en place. Mm. 
where they actually had to um, organize themselves and be able to keep straight how they were going to prepare something for their family with whatever the slaveholders' meager rations were and then return to the big house and create these lavish banquets. Um, so so no, in no other community would we say that the food she cooked in the big house wasn't her own. We would say that we say in Af- we would describe African have described African American cooks as being limited to the cabin cooking that she did in that one sphere because that's what she had to do and that's what she fed her family. But even our prominent chefs today who might go home and make hamburgers for their kids on the weekend are still recognized by the amazing uh, productions that they perform in their restaurants. Right. Right. And so what I'm hoping to accomplish is that we're able to look at these women, finally, free of gender and racial biases, and just look at the work that they did at the time. And hopefully that will remove any of the contentious nature of it, and we can all just appreciate them for the huge contributions that they've made um, alongside lots of other um, people who've invested in American cuisine. Great. Well, I applaud your work in in digging for this history and, and encourage you to, to keep on. And if anyone has um, sees this exhibit come up in their town or their area, the Jemima Code, and remember it's going to be in New York City at the James Beard House, March and April, and hopefully it will travel to a lot of other cities and people will get a chance to see it. And, Tony, it has been an absolute pleasure, and it's, it's always great to hear from you and, and learn so much and hope you'll join us again and hope we'll be able to meet up if you come back to New York. Okay? Well, Linda, thank you so much. All right. Again, this has been A Taste of the Past from Heritage Radio Network, and I've been your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.